0: And I wanted to speak on the gospel with you guys. Um, I know we say it a lot. I know we talk about the gospel a lot. Um, but at the same time, I want to start off because it is the cornerstone of who we are. And I think that as a culture, especially here in the South, what happens is, is we hear a word, but generations later, that word starts to leak its original Meaning. Think of how many words it used to mean something 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It doesn't mean that anymore. The word gospel has actually become one of those words. And so of all the things that we could preach about regarding the gospel, there's really just one little piece. that I. Because you could spend months doing this. You could spend months on the gospel. I want to spend one little part. And that's talking about the word. That's talking about how it's lost its meaning. I want to talk about what it really is. Because if you... I mean, what comes into your mind when someone says the word gospel? Let me just ask it that way. What comes into your mind? Think about it for a minute. Don't say it out loud. You'll be embarrassed. I know I would. Hey, go ahead and cue up Mark 1 if you want. The, if, I, if you would have caught me whenever I was in college, I don't know the Lord, I'm like 21, 22, and I'm just kind of a mess, and I'm walking the halls. And But I grew up in the church, right? I grew up in the South, the Bible Belt. But it wasn't really a, a spiritual upbringing I had. It was just a cultural upbringing I had. Had you come and you said, Luke, we're going to play the word association game. I'm going to give you a word, and you tell me as many words as it can come up on your mind. Now, if you have said the word gospel, this is what I would have thought of. I would have thought of the music, gospel music, like the Gaither Gospel Hour. Anyone see that? I can't stand that show. I would have thought of that. Gospel music. I would have thought of um, chicken I know that sounds weird, but when people say the word gospel, I think of chicken. Because I think of picnics. Because when I think of gospel, I think of people after church and some hot, you know, under a tree. And they've got a picnic and chickens there. You know, I think of that. I think of uh, big tent revivals, evangelism, preachers preaching really loud. You know, I think of that as well. I think of sweaty people. Isn't that weird? I, was, I did this the other day. I thought, now I'm not going to cheat. I'm going to think of what's the first thing that comes to my mind when I say the word gospel. And I wrote down sweaty people. Because on TV, on movies, whenever there's like a big tent revival or something like that, everyone's always fanning themselves, aren't they? Isn't that how it is? And the pastor's always in a white suit and is always screaming. That's what I, I would have thought of. Had you said gospel, I would have thought chicken and sweaty people. <laughs> Which is not what it means. It's not good news. It's not what it means. It's leaked its original value. It's devolved as a term right but I want to ask you is the gospel something that is relevant to you today is it something you celebrate God or celebrate and thank God for or is it something you kind of tolerate and hope that one day one day it becomes relevant it's tough I'll tell you it's the most relevant thing to mankind today a lot of times what we do as a church in the west is we will try to I guess shh I guess we try to make the gospel relevant. We're going to make it relevant. We're going to make it to where the folks with tattoos understand. We're going to make it so that the folks that do whatever or are whatever understand the gospel. But the gospel is already relevant. We just have to show how it already is. We have to redefine it and pronounce it and challenge the false gospels that are actually contending with it. Because it's already the most relevant thing that could ever be placed in your heart or before your eyes. And so I want to pick these three scriptures. One of them is in Mark. It's already up here. This is Jesus talking. right? This is right after John, John the Baptist had been killed. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay? Now this is another one by Paul. We're actually going to look at three texts that are going to drive this today, not just one. Three. So that first one was by Jesus Christ. Now Jesus was the visual gospel. God had given us a visual gospel. Not only was he speaking the good news, he actually was the good news. And he came to effect the good news and make it work. This is Paul. And now he's talking to a little baby church he helped plant. Most, most scholars believe that the church of Corinth was only about 80 adult size. It's not a very big church, right? He says, "...now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved." So now he's talking to this church because they were forgetting it. He wanted to remind them, listen, this gospel that's so important that grabs your heart, it's actually effective for you to stand in, and it's effective for you to grow in. The gospel is important." And then right after that, he spoke to another church in Galatia, right? This is another young church he helped plant. And he says, now his tone has changed a little bit in this. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now since then, since these were written... Mankind has always attacked, messed up, redefined, and pushed on what the word gospel means. And it has become largely irrelevant. It has devolved from being very good news. You know, if you're in this room now, you make up a part of the 17% of Knoxville that is attending a church service this weekend. 83% of Knoxville will not. They will stay home. 83% of Knoxville is sleeping right now, or at home, or cleaning, or mowing, whatever they do. In fact, right across the street at Sun Chase Apartments, 95% of them are staying home today. 95%. So you have 5% that don't find, or let me swap that. You have 95% that don't find any relevance in the gospel for them right now. 83 is the city at all now, but it just take the 17% that are in pews, chairs, whatever, all across the city. How many of that 17% really understand and can get their arms around what the gospel really is for them? Half? A third? I mean, I don't know. It's leaking its relevance. Whenever we came a couple Februarys ago, you know, before we planted this church, me and my wife came. Uh, we're just when we were gathering a team still. We came from Tampa to come and look at all of this, and we knew what Knoxville looked like on paper. I knew how everyone voted. I knew how everyone, how many guns they had. I knew the whole football thing. I mean, we understood it on paper, but I wanted to ask people, what kind of church do you think Knoxville needs? Some of you have heard this already. That's it. That's all I wanted to ask. Just random people as I found them across the city. Most of them had no church affiliation, did not want to go, didn't know what community was. Gospel was not relevant to them. In fact, nothing was relevant to them nothing was. They said that they didn't understand things like the communion that we have in the back right now. They didn't understand things like steeples. They didn't understand you know, people getting baptized. Weird things that culturally were so distant from them that they just opted out. Because it's it's disenfranchised. You come in and you're like, what is going on? They're sitting, they're standing. I don't even understand it. This guy's preaching. How long is he going to go? Why are we only doing three songs? Why is it on a Sunday morning? Nothing makes sense. Now these are spiritual people according to their own Assessment. They're very spiritual people, but they're opting out of church because of a lack of relevance. The gospel is the most relevant thing in the world, though. So when we saw that, we thought, it's a good time for us to come. It's a good place for us to come. We want to, not just as Jesus did, pronounce with the gospel, but as Paul, we want to redefine it for a, a different generation, and then we want to remind people of it, and then we want to push on the false gospels. Part of preaching the gospel well in a city is pushing on the false ones really hard. Really hard. There's a lot of them out there. Here's a couple right here. Here's a lie. We're going to deal with this lie. That the gospel's not for you. It's good news, but it's more like general good news. Not really like specific, applicable good news for you. The second lie is that it's really just for getting saved. It's really just for going to heaven. Which is what I grew up thinking for about ten years. If, if, if not longer. It's just for going to heaven. And then the next one is, the last one is, is it, it really doesn't have any relevance for my day-to-day, my daily, my normal. What does the gospel have to do with my normal, with my commute, with my classes, with my work, with my neighbors, with my wife, with my kids? It doesn't have any relevance to me. Now for us, as a church, as a staff, as elders, as leaders, the gospel is a really, really, really big deal. It is the fountainhead for which everything flows. There isn't anything that we're ever going to do or say that is not in some way, shape, or form connected to the overarching story of the gospel. It has to be that way for us. We say it all the time. You'll hear it a lot today. And I do it without shame at all. I mean, it's really that big of a deal for us. This is what Tim Chester says. He's a real smart guy in England. He pastors at a place called the Crowded House. And he says this, The Gospel is not simply the means by which we are converted. It is the good news of redemption through Jesus that reconciles us to God and adopts us into His family that transforms our hearts, shapes our ethics, pastors our souls, it changes our behavior, it creates the Christian community, it defines its purpose. The Gospel is the word we speak to bring unbelievers to faith and to bring believers to maturity. The Christian community is created by the gospel for the gospel. I love that. We're going to talk about that next week. The community that is created by the gospel and for the gospel. right? So the good news for you, the gospel is that God became man. So He came into a creation that rejected Him. If you read that in John, it says that it didn't even recognize Him. It didn't have any appreciation for Him. But He looked just like us. He smelled like us. He talked like us. He became the culture He came into, but He didn't act like us. He didn't think like us. His heart wasn't postured like ours because He was perfect. Because He was the God-man. He came to be amongst us, to rescue us. And this was done all totally despite us. You see, we don't help God out with the salvation work that happens in our hearts. It's done without our merit. It's done without our help at all. He does the heavy lifting and it's actually all His idea. This is the good news for us. Because with our sin, what I did with my sin and with my life is I declared war on God. I did. I did. But he stepped in and reconciled me to God to where I'm no longer an enemy, you're no longer an enemy, but you are now a friend to God. This is the gospel. It's a rescue story, it's a rescue mission, and what does it save you from? What are you being rescued from? Well, your sadness, your brokenness, your sickness, your jacked upness, your hate, your unforgiveness, your dirt, your history your sleeves, your everything. It it forgives you from all of that. It rescues you from all of that. And it's only in this beautiful story that we're ever going to get cleaned. Without it, you can never, ever, 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 ever have victory in life over sin. You can't do it. And it doesn't matter how cool the church is. It could be a really cool church. I mean, we can buy even more black drapes. Right there. We can finish it off. We can go the extra 15 foot, you know? And we can turn all of these lights off and get cool ones, right? And I can grow my hair back. I could attempt to. And dye it, it, you know, blonde and get some tattoos that just barely sneak below the sleeve to make it look like I'm still kind of hard, you know? I can do all of this stuff and preach from an iPad. We can get fog coming out. We can do all of this stuff. It's not going to change your life. It's not going to do it. It's not going to change this community. It's not going to change this city, I could be the coolest pastor that preaches really It could be the coolest church. We could even have a million community groups. Not going to change your life, your family, this community. Only the gospel will do it. It is the only thing that will shift the big boulders in your life. It's the only thing that can do it. And to the level that we as a church pick up that gospel and handle it well before you is the only way that we're going to have any victory with our own families and with those who come around us. That's it. That's why it's such a big deal to us. So, here in the South, it's always going to be upon us. Because we are in Knoxville, because Knoxville is in the deep South, we will always have to redefine and define all over again and push on false gospels and talk about the God. It's always because people think it's chicken and sweaty people. I mean, maybe not. I mean, that's what I think. But everyone has their own version of chicken and sweaty people, Right? If something came to your mind when I said gospel, and it might not have been the story I just told you. It might not have been the overarching rescue mission for your life. It might not have been that. People walking in, that is not what it's going to be. They're going to think it's something totally different. That is why we have to trudge really hard and really long and really deep here. So the first thing I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to go through these quick, is that it's not good news for you, It's just good news in general. Because we think that sometimes. The gospel is good news, I get it. Jesus came, it's good news. But is it really good news to you? I think it's the difference between, you know, I'm looking on my app, on my phone, uh, Fox News or whatever, and I find out they found a cure for whatever cancer. Whatever cancer, just some specific cancer. They cured it. And, And as soon as I hear that, I think, hey, it's great news. They found a cure for whatever kind of cancer. That's great news, but that's just good news. Really good news that's applicable is when your son has that cancer. Then you read it. Or your wife has that cancer. Or you have that cancer. Now it's really good news, is it not? It's different. You see, we treat the gospel as if it's just good news because we're used to hearing it all the time and people say that's what it means. It means good news, good tidings. So it has to be good. What else can it be? That's what the word means. But do you know that it's really good news for you? It's a remedy for you. You know, before the Bible was written, the word gospel, it actually existed. In the ancient languages, gospel was really referred to mostly whenever like, an army would defeat another army, a message would be brought back to the winning city, and it would be the news of, We have won. And that's what they called the gospel. And just by the way, as a side note, the person, the carrier, the runner, the original marathon and ultramarathon runners, those guys were called evangelists, believe it or not. The carriers of the good news. So whenever you read that in the Bible, you have to understand that it did not originate the term gospel. But that is a very beautiful picture of what it is. Because think about it. Think of how applicable it is to you now. Now imagine that you're some crusty old farmer. You know, you can't fight anymore. You used to swing a sword, but you can't do it anymore. So you're, you're working on your garden. Or you're a mom and you got like 10 kids and you're totally helpless. You're stuck in this city, and all you know is all the young men have gone off to war. And you don't know who's won yet. You're totally at the mercy of what happens on the battlefield, and because there's no phones or you know Twitter or anything, you're not gonna know until someone brings the news back to you. So you're thinking the whole time, did we send enough men? Are they gonna win? What's gonna happen to me? What's going to happen to my kids? Because this is what happened. If your battle went wrong and your army lost, guess where that army's coming next? They're getting paid. They're coming to your village. They're taking your kids. They're taking everything you own, because they're going to remunerate their losses from the battlefield. That's how it works. Winner gets the spoils. Okay. So if they lost, it's not their bad. It's your bad, too. Now, imagine, after a long silence, a runner comes bolting into the city and says, we've won. We won. Everyone's safe. That's not just good news. That's a gospel that is incredibly applicable to your life. That means something to you. That's important to you specifically. Now, I will tell you that the southern Bible Belt culture, I call it churchianity. I invented that word probably not I'm sure someone else came up with it but it's, it's a lot shorter than saying southern bible belt You know, so churchianity what it will tell you is, is as you come in and you carry your sin with you as you lust and as you slander and as you steal and as you're lazy and as, like, as we are sinners churchianity says stop it just stop it don't you know how bad that is the bible says don't be a drunk it says be full of the holy spirit the bible says don't be lazy it says work hard Churchianity will point out what the Bible says against your sin. All of those statements are true. But what is it doing to help you? How is that good news for you? This is what will happen. You have two things that will happen. If someone were to come in with a big lust problem, and I was like, stop that. Stop lusting. Stop it. And give them 15 scriptures on why it's bad to lust. One of two things is going to happen. They're either going to be swimming in condemnation because they won't be able to crawl out from under that sin, And so they're always going to be in lust. They're always going to feel like crap. Or the second thing is this. They might actually put a couple weeks together where they're not looking at something online or they're not lusting or they're not whatever, hitting on some girl or what. They might put ten days together and then they're swelling up with self-righteousness. And that's what's waiting for them. That's what churchianity has. That's a false gospel. It's not even good news at all. Good news is when you say, stop lusting because... God has given you something so much better in the gospel. Jesus has a deeper pleasure for you. The pleasure that you seek, there's something better for you. That was always meant for you and you're getting ripped off with the way you're doing it now. And you start talking about how Christ, through the gospel, has afforded something deeper. Laziness, what is that trying to get you? Peace, comfort. Don't you know there's something better? There's a deeper peace, when it goes beyond understanding, a deeper comfort that is found in the gospel. Now that's good news. Now that's different. Because it's different than just stop it. Just stop sinning. Stop sinning. Here's six ways and how you can stop sinning. I mean, when is that going to be good news? Unless the gospel is attached to it. Unless the gospel is fueling it. And you see that the thing that is striking you down from the day to day was already struck down by Christ on the cross. There is applicable good news. So the first mistake people say is that it's not applicable to me. It's not good news. The second one, that's very easy to see here in the South, as it is that it's just to get out of get get out of hell card. This is this was me, by the way. I'm a, I was a card carrying member of this club, right? Where the gospel just got me free from having to go to hell. So it's like a like a stamp you get on your hand when you go clubbing. You know, you get the stamp and you're in the club. And, I mean but once you're in the club, what good is a stamp anymore? Not, really. I mean, It's, does it, it's lost its form and function. Does't offer you anything else unless you get a bouncer coming up and saying, "Hey, what are you doing in here? Then you can flash it. It's my stamp. And then we, we sleep in, we, let, we wear it the next day so we let everyone know we went clubbing last night. You know, so we leave it on there as long as it will stay. But that's what it is. Or, or, I mean that's how we treat the gospel. It gets us in the door. It, it, it is void of purpose beyond that. Or an insurance policy. I've had to take two out for this church so far, you know? And I watch how much detail and and focus I pay attention to all the little jots and tittles of the insurance policy. How much it's going to cost, what it's going to save me from, blah, 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 blah. And then what am I going to do with it? It's going on a shelf. I'm going to forget all about it until when? Until I need to cash that in and make a claim. So when steals something, something breaks something happens. Well, now I'm interested in what that policy is. And that, once again, we really do. If we're not careful, we'll handle the gospel that way. It becomes an insurance policy. We pay a lot of attention to it. What's it going to save me from? What does it give me? What do I have to give up? What's it going to cost me? And then we cash in. It gets put on a shelf until when? Until you make a claim. Until the world runs out of gas. Now you're staring at Jesus, and you, you show Him your, your stamp. You show Him your insurance policy, and that is how we handle the gospel a lot. The All of the in-between is not essential. That's what we want pastors to help us with, churches to help us with, books to help us with, conferences to help us with. But the gospel will afford us no life, no help at all. And I'm here to tell you that's not good news at all. That's really bad news. Keller, Tim Keller, he says this, The gospel is not the ABC of the Christian life, it is the A through Z. The gospel is the everything. I'm a big fan of Tully and Chavijan, and he says this, he says, The gospel is not just the diving board, it's the pool. You know, he's very laid back, he's very Southern Florida, that's the way he probably sounded when he said it too. It's the pool. But, I mean, think about it, being a front door. Once you walk into a house, what good is the front door anymore? It's done its purpose. You're in the house now. Now you've got a TV and a couch and a refrigerator. You're not even thinking about the front door anymore unless someone knocks on it. You don't even care about it. It's void of purpose. And that's how we can be. I'm saved now. Now I've got a pastor and a church and a book an accountability group, and a men's meeting, and a women's meeting. And I've, they're going to teach me how to be a better Christian. They're going to show me how to be a better... And the, the truth is, is that's true. But it will only be done through the gospel if it's ever going to work. If it's ever going to work. I'm going to touch on that in a minute. What this means is, is we don't mature past the gospel. It is not something that we graduate from. I love how it says this in 1 Corinthians 15. If you, want, you can throw that back up there if you want. I think we have that. Is that? Caught you off guard there. It says, Now I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand now presently, and by which you are going to be saved, which you are being saved. It talks about the process of what the gospel does. It doesn't just save you, but it continually saves you. It continually rescues you from addiction it continually frees you from fear it continually is good news not just good news once but churchianity will disagree with that and it says that the gospel once it's rescued you it's finished it's finished it's done and now it's all up to you pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps and figure out how to quit sinning and that's churchianity that's a false gospel so how can a story change us How is it relevant to our day-to-day? What does it mean for my normal? How is it applicable? I will tell you, first of all, it changes your legal status. I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? It changes your legal status. Anytime you see the word in the Bible, it's a long word, just know this is what it means. Anytime you see the word justification in the Bible, it's, it's speaking on a legal term. Think of it like you're in a courtroom. Okay? But you're the defendant. Bad news for you. Okay? You're the defendant, and you're totally guilty. It's like one of those that you see on TV where you're thinking, this dude's totally guilty. He's not getting out of it. Doesn't matter what he says. The best thing you can do is shut his mouth right now. You ever see those? And they just keep talking and just make it worse for themselves? That's you. Okay? You're there, you're guilty, but right before the gavel falls, your attorney says, hey, wait, 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 wait. I want to approach the bench. Can I approach the bench? And the judge says, sure. He goes up, they start whispering back and forth, you can't hear, you're tense, you're nervous, you don't know what's going on, all you know is you're probably just minutes from an orange jumpsuit, and you're going to jail. A lawyer comes back with a big smile on his face, which is good, because if he's smiling, you're smiling, right? Anytime your lawyer's happy, you need to be a lawyer, you, you need to be happy too. And he says, look, Luke, I got great news for you, you're walking out of here free today. I am? Well, how did that happen? I mean, I was guilty as can be. I mean, how's that? How did that happen? He says, Well, I worked out a little deal with the judge. And as he's talking, he's taking off his watch and he's pulling out his wallet and he takes his jacket off and he starts pushing it across the table. And you're not really understanding what's going on. He said, Well, what kind of deal did, did you work out? Well, it's pretty obvious, <laughs> Luke, that you're not innocent, you know? I mean, someone's got to pay the price. Someone's going down for the crime. Justice has to be served. This is a house of justice. Someone's going to pay the penalty. It's going to be me. I'm going to do it as your lawyer. And you're, you're flabbergasted. You don't even know what to say at that point. He went beyond just defending you. He's taking your place with punishment. And, but the thing is, is, there's this beautiful trait. It's not that you're just walking out a free person. That's not the fullness of what justification means. It also means that you get his life. So now I've got his wallet, and all of his, his bank account numbers from Switzerland, and the keys to his JAG, and his home on the beach. You know, I've got, and his reputation, <laughs> and his history. All of this stuff has been attributed to me totally without my merit. Yet I've given him my unrighteousness, even though he didn't deserve it. There's a swapping of righteousness being made. We see this, it's not, it's not going to be up there, but in 2 Corinthians 5, it does say that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a traded righteousness, our sleaze and pollution for His perfectness. So whenever His work was finished on the cross for you, it didn't just bring you up to a zero balance, it gave you the credit of a perfectly lived life. That's pretty good news. I don't know how you graduate from that. I don't know how you mature past that. That has to matter in your day-to-day. Well, how? How does it matter in your day-to-day? Because it frees you from performing to continually impress the judge. That you have to hear. Because imagine now, imagine going back the next day to the same courthouse, and the lady that took your court fee, it's usually like ten bucks. I shouldn't know that, but I do. But you pay ten bucks, you get into court, that's the woman, right with the glass right there before you go into the courtroom. You say, hey, I want to sign up for community service. I'm going to go pick up trash on the highway. She goes, well, didn't I see you in here yesterday? I don't think I have you signed up for community service. Why are you here? Well, that's right. You must have noticed I drove up in a jag. I did walk out of here a free man. But I want to prove to the judge that I'm worth it. I want to pr- I'm going to pick up trash for a long time because I really want him to be pleased with me. I want him to give me favor. I want him to like me and think that I'm worth the fact that I got out of here scot-free. People would look at you like you're crazy. First of all, that's not even freedom. That's just a self-imposed bondage. Your friends seeing you out picking up trash on the highway, that doesn't look like freedom to them. And it doesn't make any sense to the judge. The judgment's been cast, the penalty's been paid. You don't have to go back and perform. But that's what we do. That's what we do. We've legally been freed, but we continually go back and just keep performing and performing and picking up trash spiritually on the side of the highway. Why? So that He'll give us more favor and we can prove to God that we really deserved our salvation. Boy, we really want control over that, don't we? We really want control over whether we are saved or not. And we will do anything we can to prove that we are worth it. Boy, there's a freedom in not having to perform. There's a freedom in loving God and loving people knowing that it doesn't matter. It's not going to give you any more favor or any less favor. Your performance as a Christian does not dictate the level of favor God has put on you in your life. Why? Because Jesus is the one that dictated that. His perfect performance was there. So your performance now does not have to be. That's how important this is. This justification that it talks about in the Bible. So, the question I'd have to ask you there is where do you struggle with that? Where are you picking up trash on the side of the highway? What works are you continually doing to impress a judge who's already cast a verdict? We all do it. It's very difficult not to add something to Jesus Christ, but we do. It doesn't just change your legal, it changes your relational standing too. I've talked about here in the past how, imagine two countries that are fighting with each other, but one's like one big country like China or Russia, just, you know, they always show up, they always win in the Olympics, they always get their way, big nation, big robust economy and you got some little country, you know, (laughs) that no one even knows where they're at on a map, they never show up to the Olympics, you know what I'm saying, it's just one of those countries. And imagine they're just throwing rocks at each other, who's going to win that? Imagine you're in that small country. Imagine you're the leader of that small country and you're hucking rocks at Russia, you know, or whatever. And they say, hey, 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 we're going to work out a peace treaty right now because we're not going to fight us and you. Even though it was your fault and you started it and you cast the first stone, we're going to do a peace treaty. Well, that sounds good to you all of a sudden because you are this little country that doesn't go to the Olympics, okay? And so you say, well, what's the price? What's going to be the price tag for this treaty? And they put a price tag out there that is so high, and so far beyond what you can reach, so far beyond what you can get. I mean, you could even make up one one millionth of the price of what they're asking. And you just look at each other and you're like, what do we do? I mean, we couldn't afford this peace treaty if we wanted. Then the big country chimes in and says, you know what, you're right. We're going to give you the money to pay it. We're going to supply you with the funds to flip around and pay us to afford this peace treaty. To make enemies friends. This is the word reconciliation in the Bible. Whenever you see the word reconciliation, that means God did something on the cross for you and me that made us no longer enemies, but now friends. It's the difference between a judge saying you're guilty or you're innocent and then leaving and going home and a judge going out and having coffee with you the next day. Right? Now we're not enemies. We're friends. He's brought us close. How do you graduate beyond that? How do you mature past that? you don't. It's applicable for your everyday. Well, what does that mean? It means that He's not out to blast you. God's not out to blast you. He's out out to love you. Now, He will discipline you, but that's done from a posture of love. You know? It means that we're friends. The God that we serve is a friend. But what area of your life do you feel like God is out to get you? Do you ever have that? Think about it. What area of your life do you think God is out to blast you in? We all have it. Or something. It's very difficult on us. And then real quickly, I'm going to go to it. It doesn't just change that. It changes our familial standing with God. This is where we get the word adoption in the Bible. Where we're brought from outside the camp, inside the camp. We're adopted into God's family. But not just adopted. Adopted and given the rights of the firstborn. Which they got twice as much as everyone else did. Twice as much money. Twice as much food, I don't know. Twice as much everything. They're the firstborn, and that's the right you have. How do you mature past that? How do you graduate beyond adoption being a real thing in your everyday life? It's a beautiful part of the Gospel. It means you're praying to a father. See how much more closer we're getting? See how the relationship is altering with the different faces of the Gospel? Because now you're adopted. Now he's a father. Now that makes a big difference when you pray to a father. Doesn't it change the way you look at your relationship? Maybe even change the way you look at your sin. You know, before anyone got here today, and it was me and my son were here by ourselves for about twenty minutes, and and I just I don't know. I mean, it wasn't because I, I was going to say it today. I didn't even think about it until just now. But I told him how proud I was of him, how much I loved him, and how how special I thought he was, and and how there's nothing he could do in a million years. To change the level of love I have for him. That I cannot love him any more than I love him now. And I certainly can't love him any less. I I love him, I can't even alter. And he goes, well, what if I did something real bad? it doesn't matter what you do. And he goes, well, what if I kicked this? He kind of kicked the tire of the trailer. What if I did that? "I, I, I love you. Well, what if I scratched the sticker off the back of the truck? I said, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. And he was just being goofy. He was just trying to, he would have just gotten more and more and more as a kid does, you know? And my answer wouldn't have changed. That is the relationship. This is easy for me to envision because I had a good dad and because I have a son. It's harder for some of you because you might have had crappy dads. You might have had a crappy upbringing and you don't understand the love of a father. So your relationship with with, with your dad or with your mom was always about report cards. Or being first chair, or being first team, or being varsity, or having employment, or something like that. And as long as you did that, your parents loved you more, and so you kept doing it. It was a dog just chasing its own tail. And if you could produce what you felt like was going to get love from your mom or from your dad, you'd keep doing it. And it's hard for you to imagine a God that would love you regardless of your report card. Regardless of how varsity you think you are. Regardless of any of that that God loves you as a Christian, He could not love you anymore. It's hard for us to do that. But let me tell you, you can't mature beyond that, and it changes the way you look at everything. When, you, when you're you in that love, it changes the way. You sin, you don't have to go three weeks before you show up to church and worship God, or worship Him in your living room. You don't have to do that. You could do it instantly, because He doesn't stop being my son right after He does something bad. He's just as much my son. My love has never changed. Does that make sense? You have to hear that. But churchianity says no. Disagrees with that. It says life is full of rules. And if you follow them, Jesus loves you more and you get things. But if you don't follow them, bad things happen to you and he takes things away. Because he's not pleased with you anymore. In fact, he might even take your health. So if you're sick, it's probably because you're in sin. That's what churchianity tells you. Gospel disagrees with that. It also changes what defines you. You know, the good news for some of you, for some of you more than others, is that your history, whenever you meet Christ on the cross, that defines you, not your history. Our history defines a lot of us. Some of us have been molested. Some of us have been abused in several different ways. And it, it'd be stupid to say that doesn't inform who you are today. It does. I've had a great upbringing. None of that. Nothing traumatic has really ever happened to me. And still I can point at bad things that I've done or has been done to me that have informed who I am today. It changes everything. Now the gospel comes in and it redefines you. And it says your identity is something else now. You have a new identity. And it's buried in Christ. And that sounds weird, doesn't it? To have your identity all buried in someone else's. Like, almost like it makes you a clone, like you don't have any personality right now because I look like you and you look like me because our personalities are buried in Christ, Our lives are buried in Christ. But the truth is is, without the gospel, you don't even really have the personality you were built to have. It's only when you have the gospel active and growing in your life. Only when that's true does it knock the dust of sin off to where you could really be you, where you could really, really be you. So what does this mean? because you can't graduate from that. It means that you can be you. And some of you are already thinking, well, I already am me. I don't change who I am for anybody. I mean, this is who I am. But watch watch the subtle things you do when you're in certain situations or when you're around certain people. You will find that there are still some needs that are gaping in your heart that you're still trying to feed from things that happened back in the day. People-pleasing, acceptance, Fears and insecurities. It's just a fact. The gospel redefines that. It says that history doesn't define you anymore. It's not who you are. Christ has put you in, some, in another place. So, changes everything. All of those things are true. Changes your association because now you're in a community, you're in a new family, you're in the church. We're talking about that next week. It changes your agenda. You're not on your mission anymore, you're on God's mission. You know? Not your agenda, you're on His agenda. And let me tell you something, that sounds real weird, dogmatic, strange, but only when your agenda fits within God's does it even make sense. Only when your mission fit. I'm so tired of hearing Christians say, well, this is really my mission in life. My mission in life is this, and, and it doesn't sound anything like God's mission. Let me tell you, if it doesn't sound a lot like God's mission, that's not a very good mission for you to be on either. It needs to really smell, echo, and be just like what God's mission is. I don't care what it is. It has to be like that. If it has something to do with the arts, fine. It has to do something with education, fine. If you're going to be a police officer, fine. I don't care what it is. But your mission has to fit in with the grand, overarching mission of God. So whenever we say as a church, we're on mission, it's God's mission, not ours. We might do it a certain way, but it's going to be God's mission. Okay? So, I'm finishing. But I will say that the main reason that many of you have a hard time putting down sin in your life is the exact same reason that some of you are, might be very far from God today. Some of you might be very far from the cross altogether. Some of you are struggling on the other side of the cross putting down some sort of a sin. The reason that's difficult for the both of you in groups is because you're having a hard time believing that the gospel really is that good. And that it really is that strong. And that it really is that faithful. So if you're far from God, and you're not a Christian, and you don't have anything to do with it, the things that will run through your mind is, the gospel's not good enough, I'm too dirty. I'm not clean enough. I have to clean myself a little bit first before I come to Christ. I need to fix a few things. I'm unacceptable in the current state. Even though Jesus, He celebrated being around those who were unclean, He specializes in reaching the unclean. We think that we're too unclean. We think that the gospel's not strong enough. If you are a Christian and you struggle with some sort of a sin, you say the gospel's not good enough, strong enough, faithful enough, so I've got to add something to it. I have to perform better. I have to add and mix in my own mixture to make the gospel really, really good news. And let me tell you, the really good news is that all of that is false. <laughs> all of that is a lie. That's why it's really good news. That's why it's really good news i'm going to finish with this scripture. Kevin you come up, bud in Mark 1, 14, I started with this. It says, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. so repent, repent, and believe in the gospel. and I will tell you i 'm not even going to give this it's due i 'm going to be done in 90 seconds. Repenting could take its own service altogether, its own month, you know. But please understand, whenever Christ is talking here and He says repent, He's not talking about the big couple sins that really bug you. He's not talking about the couple big shameful sins that you really don't like and are really always in your face. He's talking about anything that's about your agenda and not His. Anything that's about chasing your own glory and not His own glory. So it's not just hating a few sins, it's hating all sin. It's hating all sin. That's very difficult for us to understand sometimes because whenever we think of repent, we think of something very specific. So if I were to do word association again, and I were to say repent, some of you guys would immediately have one or two big sins come up. And that's how it is. Understand that Christ is talking about a very big and sweeping kind of repentance. So we turn from our own ways of medicating, our own little issues and pains. Why? Because the gospel says on the cross there is a deeper remedy. that is a true medication. Not the cheap knockoffs that we do. We turn from our prejudices. I talked to a guy at the laundromat about this for 30 minutes this Friday. We turn from our prejudices and our offenses of other people. We get offended so easily and we hold those things. Why do we turn from that? Because we have been forgiven of a greater offense, because we murdered the Son of God. If we can be forgiven of that, what offense can we hold? That's what the gospel is. Do you see how that fixes our heart's stance on forgiveness? We turn from destroying others and elevating ourselves. How do we do that? What does the gospel say? Because Christ let himself be destroyed so he could elevate us. That's the gospel. It changes everything. That's why we talk about it all the time. Repenting is more than just saying, I'm going to quit looking at stuff online. I'm going to quit being lazy. But, Southern churchianity, it says we need Jesus to save us, but we need ourselves to keep us. It says we might be a Christian, but we'll never be clean from our past. It'll always be there. It says that Jesus is out to blast you if you break rules, so you better love Him if you want Him to love you back. Southern churchianity, it says stop it. Just stop it. And the gospel says stop it because something is better. See, the gospel is where everything starts, but it never ends. It is the most important thing that we will ever do as a church. Some of you have really got to start getting your arms around that. Some of you are Christians and you've struggled with your walk because you're not making the gospel a very active part of who you are. It's something that you've tried to graduate from. Some of you are very far from God because the gospel has never made sense. It's never been relevant. It's meant something totally different. And it's time for you to get your arms around it because there is absolutely no hope for you without it. No hope. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be good enough. Therefore, God sent someone who could. That's the whole idea. That's the whole gospel.